Three and a half years ago, a Bay of Plenty community was thrown into turmoil. There is no sign of life on Fakari White Island tonight after the eruption at our most active volcano, and it's still too dangerous for recovery teams to go in. 47 people were on the Bay of Plenty Island at the time. Five are confirmed dead, but eight are still missing on the island, with officials saying it'll now be a recovery operation. The final death toll from extreme burns and blast injuries was 22. This week, six parties involved in the tragedy go to trial. There will be bigger questions in relation to this event. These questions must be asked and they must be answered. It was a tragedy that gripped the small town in many ways. The small team of two doctors and six nurses suddenly confronted with one of New Zealand's largest natural disasters. It took a long time to, um, to register what, what we were seeing like nothing else, you know, with the, so many people and and they were all covered in, in mud or ash, um, obviously horrific burns. I met with first responders and health professionals this morning. They worked tirelessly in the most devastating circumstances. Many of them had not yet rested or slept. The toll that the impact of this uh, extraordinary tragedy has had on them was obvious. From the first responders and their whanau, the medical teams at the hospital, the council and emergency workers, the business owners hit by the tourism decline, and the iwi. Ngati Awa was a leader in the days, weeks and months after the eruption, but at the same time its own business, White Island Tours, was under scrutiny. And this. Many of the people who were held to account were people who, in that moment, were absolutely heroic. There's no other way to describe it. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, the trial brings back the memories of that terrible day, December 9th, 2019. We're going to be looking at how it has brought a small town closer. But first, RNZ's senior journalist Amy Williams is covering the case in Auckland. The trial is about the health and safety regime that these companies and individuals had in the lead up to the eruption. So it doesn't cover the day of the eruption or the rescue efforts afterwards. And WorkSafe is laying the charges? WorkSafe has laid the charges. So it relates to the Health and Safety at Work Act and the requirements that these companies and people had as directors of the companies, some of the companies, to keep their workers and tourists safe. However, there are three individuals, three Buttle brothers, who are part of the family that owns the island. They are charged as individuals because they are directors of one of the companies that effectively owns the island. And we will talk about a bit more about the Buttles in a moment, but why is it being held in Auckland? Why not Whakatane or even Tauranga or Rotorua, which are so much closer? Yeah, that's a good question because, of course, White Island is visible from the Whakatane township. Um, and a lot of people who would be wanting to attend the trial live there. They did look at holding the trial in Whakatane. They even looked at a marae, which would have been potentially large enough to hold the trial. However, 
because of the sheer number of people who are expected to take part in the trial, because originally there were 13, then 9, then 6 defendants, um, just the number of people, the legal teams, the media interested, remember it garnered worldwide attention, as well as families who want to come and sit in the public gallery. And there are no courtrooms even around the country. They looked in the Bay of Plenty, they looked in Fakatane. no courtrooms big enough. Even the Auckland District Court, no courtroom is big enough there to hold the sheer number of people that are expected to be part of it. So they ended up going for neutral ground and it's actually going to be held at the Environment Court in Auckland. Um, it is unusual. We've had big trials take place in Auckland in the High Court, but even the High Court for this one was deemed not large enough. On Friday, there was an 11th hour change. Tell me about that. Yeah, three helicopter companies, companies that either contracted helicopters to do tours on White Island or directly had helicopters going to the island doing tours, they were also charged by WorkSafe for health and safety breaches. Initially they pled not guilty, on Friday they pled guilty to amended charges and they will be sentenced so that will likely happen after trial. Also last month, June 15th, White Island Tours pleaded guilty to two amended charges. The charges laid by WorkSafe find that the company's risk assessment processes did not adequately identify the risk of a significant eruption. The summary of facts basically said that White Island Tours failed to comply with its duties to its workers, it failed to conduct adequate risk assessments of the activity of tours on the island, and also it failed to consult with GNS Science about the ongoing hazards and risks. It also failed to provide appropriate PPE uh, personal protective equipment to workers. White Island Tours says it deeply regrets this. The company won't be sentenced until the charges against other defendants are resolved. But they're not the only party to plead guilty. GNS pled guilty in May this year. So GNS is the Crown Research Institute that monitors volcanoes. It had monitoring equipment set up on the island and an alert system about any um, uptick in volcanic activity. So the charges against GNS relate to multiple field trips that its staff took to the island before the eruption particularly with regards to GNS's duty to the helicopter pilots who were contracted to it to take its staff to and from the island on those trips. So WorkSafe found GNS didn't sufficiently consult with the pilots about the risks. However, it had consulted, it had carried out risk assessments for its staff, it directly employed, um, which included volcanologists, who you'd expect to know all about that sort of thing, I guess, who went on the field trips. So the helicopter pilots regularly flew GNS workers to and from Fakari, but they were required to remain on the island while GNS scientists carried out their field work. Sometimes the pilots would also accompany the scientists on that field work, even though they didn't have to. And so WorkSafe found that in the months leading up to the eruption, GNS staff were transported to and from Fakari by helicopter pilots on 23 occasions. And they said that really it should have GNS should have been consulting with the helicopter pilots as much as it had its own staff.
Amy, the Buttles, the family who own Fakari, they tried to have their charges dropped. The owners of Fakari White Island, Andrew James and Peter Buttle, have failed in a bid to have health and safety charges against them dismissed. WorkSafe laid charges against the brothers in the wake of the 2019 Fakari eruption, which killed 22 people. The Buttles' lawyers had argued that the charging documents were defective, but that argument wasn't accepted by Judge Evangelist Thomas. So the Buttle family has owned the island since 1936, and there, there are a few privately owned islands in New Zealand, and this is one of them. Fakari Management is the company that granted access to the island for tour operators. So they were given license agreements. The tour operators paid an annual fee and a commission for every tourist that they took to the island. So that's money that went back to Fakari Management, which is owned by these three brothers. And more will emerge about them. They're very private, so I guess we will find out a bit more about them in court. Yeah, that's right. Um, the other interesting thing is that the organisations that have pled guilty, it's now possible that some of those will be among the witnesses in the trial. The sombre silhouettes of families sharing their grief and love. taking a moment to acknowledge the tragedy which rocked this coastal town three years ago. Let's turn to the Whakatane community now, and Joe Harawera is the former chair of the Natiawa Trust. He won't talk about the trial itself, but says there has been a lot of angst for the iwi. My role uh, was to take the lead from an iwi perspective and to overlay the whole process of grieving and our whare nui to work through that process with our community to, to bring our community together in the time of tragedy. It was, a, it was a feeling of shock. Everybody was just in shock. Initially for about a month afterwards, it was very eerie, very quiet, very silent. Leading up to Christmas was still silent and quiet. I think there's still a bit of stun, stunness about the place. Um, yeah, just it's not quite vibrant and jolly as it as it normally is. There's people sort of wandering around in, in a bit of a still in a bit of a daze. Uh, uh, you know, you just sort of go into a um, not a reflective mode, a retractive mode, I suppose, and say, "Oh, you know, what do we do?" Uh, it's it's all unfolding uh, that at that very time as to how we would deal uh, with the process and what we thought we would do was to use the mata to our fare. Um, as a base for the community to come to, to grieve, I suppose, to deal with um, the tragedy, to understand what had happened um, under the umbrella of uh, what we call manaki, mm. manaki uh, tangata, to, to look after the people. And that wharanui matatua, it has remained central, really, to a diff the, the memorial services and other things. People talk about that. The people, you know, people who've come in from overseas, they talk about how important that was to them over the over time. And even Mayor, the former Mayor Judy Turner talks about how essential it was to the whole process, the recovery process. They were amazing. In fact, I, I would I would credit them with getting us through through the issue. They opened their marae down at the heads um, every morning, mm. and and people flocked there. It was just comforting. They, I guess, I find iwi a very 
open about how grief can be given expression to and how and processed openly and honestly in a way that I don't necessarily think our party, our culture has always um, dealt with things that way. There are a whole lot of families who came out to New Zealand to flock to because their loved ones were in hospital somewhere in New Zealand, would come came down to Fokotani to try and get a sense of what had happened. I'll just paint a picture for you. Mm. Um, on the morning of the recovery, we took a boatload of um, Australians and the family of the young Māori boy that passed away, the Māngi family. Uh, at 4 o'clock, we took them out on the, on the day of the recovery out to White Island. We left at 4 o'clock in the morning. We were able to carry out our tikanga in the form of karanga to our our ancestor, our kuia whakaari, which was followed by uh, mihi mihi uh, to those that were still on the island about to be recovered. The wind was so strong and the grit was still coming off the, the island. You couldn't really face the island for, for too long or else the, the stuff would get into your eyes and was stinging on your face. And um, we were probably anchored about uh, 100 metres off the island and I quoted a, a saying, a whakatauki, uh, tini whetu ki te rangi, ka mautonu, ka mautonu. Tini tangata ki te whenua, Ngaronoa, ngaronoa. And what that means is that the, 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 the bright shining stars will always be there on the black hair of night, but we, the people on the land, will be lost. From the Māori uh, perspective, we look at all of those stars up in the heavens and every single one of those stars is an ancestor of ours. You know, from, from that day on, they would be able to, they could walk out the back door, look up to the stars and look for the brightest star in the sky and so, and, and have a conversation. That's their loved one who's on the island uh, at the moment. By the time we took them off the boat at about six in the morning, they were undone. They were just, you know, we just, they just fell into our arms. Mm. And it was one of them, I always remember this Australian man said to me this, he said, <laughs> Excuse the language. He said, I didn't understand a bloody word they said, but I felt it. And I said, yes, that's mm. what it's like for us. They they said that, well, there was something powerful happened to me out there. I don't know what it is. And so basically that, that story got out to the news in Australia and even in uh, the United States of America. That um, actually rolled over into the community because and we'd be having a cup of tea uh, over those couple of weeks and a lot of those people came up and said, well, uh, you know, uh, I, didn't, I, I was afraid to come to a Marae situation because I, I didn't understand it and... Um, but being in that house gives me a sense of, of calmness. To be honest with you, one of the things I had to do for myself was to turn off my mother brain and turn on my, my Meryl brain and go, I'm here to help. I'm not here to um, get too emotionally um, caught up in the moment because I think there's jobs that we need to do and we need to be able to speak to the public and we need to be able to do media interviews and we need to be able to give out information as it comes to light so that people are fully aware of what's gone down. It was a significant um, event in, in terms of world news as well. And in the middle of that, which was also dealing with things like we had local families um, who had been impacted and making sure that we made contact with them um, to support them through 
um, that difficult time. Um, Hayden Inman would be a classic example of a young man who worked for um, White Island Tours, had a passion for his job, and um, I, to this day, believe he heroically laid his life down for others. He, um, The stories that I've heard and just what I know and have learned about Hayden would, would lead me to believe that he would have put others before his own life, and I believe he did that. From the 60 lives Hayden once saved from a burning boat to his weekly donation at the local supermarket. He would always leave a $5 note behind, but he wouldn't tell anyone. No one knew he did it because he did it out of the kindness of his heart. Kia ka, you've done New Zealand proud. Whakatane's hero until the end. The whole town, really, the whole of Whakatane and the surrounding area was sort of caught up in this, wasn't it? I mean, the hospital, the workers at the hospital. And they said they were treating people uh, who were injured, not only injured that they knew, but also passed away in the eruption. And the anaesthetist who was speaking in that story, she said, and amongst the chaos, she was stopping to talk to those injured, both the ones she knew as well as the strangers. Business people. It's a small community, so everybody knew somebody who was very closely involved. Yes, I knew Hayden. Um, My company, when we were teaching people to dive, taught him to dive. He was uh, full of life, loved fishing, loved diving, and uh, was a very experienced guide with White Island Tours. Are you still in touch with the local families of the victims? Yes, I am. So um, Hayden Inman, I mentioned him, his mum and I became friends through this basically and have maintained good contact uh, with each other. Some of them have looked to, to maintaining some privacy and I think that was one of the things we felt really strongly about was particularly for those people where there'd been changes to their appearance and things like that and they were the season where they were having multiple surgeries and all this kind of thing. And so I think we felt very defensive of their privacy and that included ourselves. Like, don't if, if they don't want contact, then we just give them the space they need. The other sensitivity is is, I guess, the role of Natiawa as the main local iwi. I mean, you know, there's a couple of things going on there. It's the owner of White Island Tours. Um, And they were the very recent owners too. I mean, that's the interesting thing. They had not long purchased that business um, and had taken it over and were doing a very good job, I might add, and and were, you know, they were looking to develop it At the time of the eruption, or or very shortly after, you said that uh, tourist trips to Fakari should continue. They haven't so far, but do you still believe that? Well, here's, here's, I guess at the time I was, yeah. When I was asked the question, I, I said, because my, it was sort of asked in a way, do you, do you trust the, the mm. providers? And I absolutely did. I think here's what's going to be interesting is if, for instance, the um, health and safety regulations put in place for Fakari to be, if it's to be ever visited again, if they are stripped to the point that in the past I think we visited it when it was at, it was seismically monitored 24-7. So when it was level one and some level two, we could usually go out quite safely. If they drop that down to level one and say, well, you can only go out there and land on the island and visit it that way if it's at level one, it, I suspect, and I may be wrong, but I suspect it may not be level one often enough um, to be... Um, viable from a financial point of view to, to, to equip and go. I'm just wondering what are, what other lasting effects do you 
feel in the community of the Fakari eruption? I, 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 don't, I think it's now, a, it's now a, 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 a wedded part of our history and um, the White Island, I think, still is a, you know, even if people got in a boat and floated around and had a look from, from the island, it's a fascinating environment, absolutely fascinating. The trial, you know, that's a key point also in this yes. whole process. Something that's not as well understood is that the, the people on trial are not so much related to what happened on the day. It is more to do with complying or not complying uh, with the adventure tourism safety requirements, which you know, were the standards good enough and, and had everybody met the ones that were in place and it was more the um, the concern yeah. rather than actually how people behaved on the day. But it is, it's uh, many of the people who were held to account were people who in that moment were absolutely heroic. There's no other way to describe it. It's remembering what happened, those we lost, those whose lives have been impaired, and then those who responded with huge courage and fortitude um, in what was a, a terrifying situation, absolutely terrifying. Fakati's Fakati, and we still love her, and she's still a beautiful um, island that we go and visit and, and spend time out there with. Do you think, Joe, that it has um, changed the culture of the town at all or changed the the relationships in the town, change the community, I suppose? I think that it has. The involvement of the iwi now at the decision-making table um, at the council and on, on a lot of um, levels, we find ourselves now sitting at the table to support and to help in, in making decisions about our community. And I think that was uh, the the bringing together of our people at that particular time in a time of tragedy just opened the doors to um, being able to work work as one, I suppose, work together, which we did through that whole um, tragedy. You know, um, quite often you, you'll get National Emergency Service and all of the services, they work apart from the people at place. Um, we, the iwi at place, had a had a played a big role in the 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 beginning of every day with uh, Karakia offering the the whare nui as a place to meet, to catch up with what was happening over those couple of weeks. Um, we had our people at the airport receiving the bodies off the island. The day they brought them off the island, and they allowed us to carry out our protocols to bring them. Um, to that place where all of the families could come and grieve at the um, um, the airport. And we don't, it's probably the first time that we have felt that we have been a part of a whole process as the iwi. Change is slow, but I, I see uh, the coming together of a community and, and, and that tragedy brought us together, I think. And the trial's expected to take 16 weeks. That's it for today. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Alexia Russell, Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Joe Harawera, Amy Williams and Judy Turner. Kakite anō.